In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. Well, last week we were talking about spring is sprung, Helen. I don't know, but um, it's disappeared for a while. We've been hit by snowstorms and freezing conditions. Big change. Yeah, but in between times we had the, the, the blue sky and sunshine still. It was unbelievable. It was just, but, oh, brr. Yeah, typical Scottish weather. But regardless of the weather, the 1st of April marks an important date in the Scottish calendar because that's when many of our visitor attractions open up, our famous sites across Scotland. And we thought that for the next couple of episodes, we would look at two of the major custodians of these sites in Scotland. And today we're looking at the National Trust for Scotland, or as it was first called when it was established, the National Trust for Scotland for places of historic interest or natural beauty. So, the National Trust, Helen. Yes, I think it's a fantastic organisation. I have a family membership of it, Liz, and what I love about it is I can go into all of their places, take the children, take the grandchildren, and it doesn't matter how long their concentration lasts, whether it's five minutes or five hours, because I can keep going back and back and back with my membership. And it's just so good to see all these places being kept and looked after. Yep, it's the largest member organisation in Scotland. It's got over 300,000 members and it's those members that largely fund it through their subscriptions and their donations. They also have a number of commercial activities. They have buildings that they let out, shops and whatever. So there's hardly any money that comes from the government. They've also got a large portfolio of investments. So although they're constantly you know, in boom bust periods where they go up and down, they do manage to sustain themselves. Yes, and, and you know, that really surprised me about the, the membership, which is a huge number. That's great. But actually, it costs so little to be a member. I'm surprised there's not, not everybody is a member, but that giving them all their money is fantastic. But of course, nowadays, they do quite a bit of this, you know, as you say, the commercial activities, such as letting out their places for venues. They're great for wedding hires and things like that. Yeah. And I suppose the question that comes to mind is, what is it that they're protecting? What are we putting in trust? 
And, you know, it's, it's a whole variety of things as we'll look at in this episode, but it's really basically the natural and cultural heritage of Scotland um, so that not only the current generation, but future generations can enjoy it. And it all really came about at the end of World War One, because Scotland was in the doldrums. You know, in World War One, Scotland lost a huge number of young men, quite disproportionate to the size of the population. And those that were left had very little to remain in Scotland for. So it was a period of emigration and the whole country was just in despair. Yeah, and you... There was just nothing happening, and then you know, slum dwelling people were you know, feeling down, and then people then began to think a wee bit about, it. hey, wait a minute, we are Scots, we we have a a wonderful heritage. Let's see what we can do. And it was Sir John Sterling Maxwell who was the the man who really brought it into focus, and he used his position. He was quite a philanthropist in many ways, and he used his position to help ordinary people. And he saw what was going on, and he decided that he would do something about it. Yeah, he was a real mover and shaker. And him and the the sort of the other bigwigs of the time were the ones that instigated it. And really the catalyst for all this was that Sir John was vice president of the Association for the Preservation of Rural Scotland. And in that role, he was approached by a gentleman who was wanting to offer the Loch Dee estate in Galloway as a gift to the nation. But Sir John was unable to accept it under this preservation of rural Scotland. And at that time, the English had already established a national trust. It was based on a similar organisation that had been founded in Massachusetts in the United States in 1891 to acquire, hold, arrange, maintain and open to the public beautiful and historic places and tracts of land. So you know a Scot if a Scot thinks that they're going to come under the English and that the English are going to take <laughs> responsibility for our preservation and care, then the first reaction is, no way. So Sir John and his buddies got together and huddled discussions. And out of all of this, in 1931 came the National Trust for Scotland. Yes, it's quite funny that they, they did this on privacy of Sir John's own house at Pollock House, you know, in the cedar room there, so that you'd know, be no chance of him being overheard in, in any other public place. And I just think it's lovely that they, they decided, no, we're going to do it for ourselves. Yeah, there's a beautiful quote that comes out of it um, by Sir John Maxwell at the, the Trust's first annual general meeting. He said, the National Trust for Scotland serves the nation as a cabinet into which it can be put some of its valuable things, where they will be perfectly safe for all time and where they're open to be seen and enjoyed by everyone which is a fantastic summing up of what the National Trust does. But, you know, in that you're thinking about buildings and collections. The National Trust is so much more than that. So, Helen, when you think of the National Trust, what do you think of? Well, I just think of of the great variety of of places and things that that are part of it, that we're we're able to go to, whether it be a walk in in the in the hills at Glencoe or to visit an old abbey or perhaps to go and see a nice mansion house which fully furnished to see how people lived. It's just everything, Liz. And when it's not only land, it's seascape as well. Islands. I think it's great. Yeah, I suppose when most people think of the National Trust in Scotland, they think of the big blockbusters, the sites of historical and cultural interest. I mean, my personal favourite is Culloden. I love Culloden because I think it's just a visitor centre that really 
tells the story. It's immersive, you get into it, there's a big interactive room where you're surrounded by the battle in 360 degrees. And this is the story of the battle between the Jacobites and the Redcoats in 1746. And it's an actual, it's a, a, a monument to the battle. It's a graveyard. This is where the, these brave men and women fought and died. Yes, and as you say, Liz, it's it is just a battlefield that you 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 mentioned the word monument, but there is no monument, just the cairn, the the visitor centre itself, which is just a gem in the National Trust portfolio, and they actually realised that the previous visitor centre was a blot on the landscape, so they took it down and built this one which just merges into it. It just you know, sits in it sits on the battlefield very comfortably. Yeah, when you walk through the visitor centre, you have the story told through both sides. You have oral histories, you have pictures, you have collections from the time. And it doesn't take sides. It's not the, the Jacobites, you know, poor souls and the redcoats, the evil perpetrators. It's telling the story and, you know, getting it right that it wasn't the Highlands against the Lowlands. It, it wasn't religion one against the other. This was civil war. This was families divided. And I think it's fantastic at telling that. But I've got kind of mixed views about Bannockburn. Oh, I don't even think my my views about Bannockburn are very mixed, Liz. I think they're they're kind of quite biased. <laughs> no, I think I was very disappointed. The Bannockburn, the Battle of Bannockburn, is equally a watershed moment, an iconic moment in Scottish history. And the when the visitor centre at Bannockburn was due for a refurbishment. I was really quite excited because I heard that you know, I knew what a fantastic job the National Trust for Scotland had done at Culloden. And I really looked forward to it because just in case anybody's forgotten, Stirling is my hometown and Bannockburn is just outside Stirling. So I really thought this was going to be great. But they they seemed to go right down the, t- the technology route, the route of video games, etc., but tried to make us play these video games and to me it doesn't work for me I think it might work for for young school children but it doesn't work for me I think you're showing your age there I know, in video games. I, know. I think it's a wee bit more high tech than that. But yes, I do agree with you. And the problem is that because of that, it's limited in the numbers that they can take. So not a great success for my mind, but many people love it. But then we've got areas of outstanding natural beauty that tell stories, like the Glenfinnan Monument, which tells the story of Bonnie Prince Charlie's landing at Loch Shiel. So what a beautiful area that you've got, you know, the setting of many films, like you've got the Glenfinnan Viaduct, which was the, the the viaduct that the Hogwarts Express goes over on its way to Hogwarts. Yeah, I I, I noticed that Glenfinnan was you know, standing quite high up the stakes in terms of numbers of visitors, and I'm wondering whether it was the landing of Bonnie Prince Charlie that was taking the people to Glenfinnan, or whether it was the Hogwarts Express going over the viaduct, which can be seen beautifully from the monument. Yeah, and then we've got Glencoe and the Valley of Sorrow. And that's the most recent visitor centre to open, very eco-friendly. It was unveiled in 2019. I haven't visited the new one yet. I mean, I quite like the old one and the little antiquated, this was a video by one of our historians, (laughs) Fiona Watson, telling the the story of Glencoe. So I'm quite interested to see what the new centre looks like. Yes, I've only been to it once, Liz, but it was was a case of, it it was just closing and we were 
just rushing not to see what they had but to use the facilities so (laughs) yeah popular for that yes but as well as these blockbusters there's hundreds of little buildings and collections which are part of the trust there's only one well there's two palaces one royal palace Falkland Palace which was passed over to the trust by the hereditary keeper Michael Crichton Stewart so the trust now has care of it and maintains the palace and its gardens but I know there is another palace not a royal palace that's close to your heart Helen. Yes it's Kura's palace but that as you say Liz is not a royal palace it was uh, built by Sir George Bruce who was just basically a an entrepreneur. He was a businessman. He was a coal miner and he he traded. And he, with his wealth, built this grand house and painted it this lovely kind of, not quite king's gold, but sort of ochre colour. And I think it was the local people who possibly called it a palace uh, because it was so grand and it just got the name. But James VI did visit it. So, I mean, there has been a king there. He didn't stay over, but he, he did visit it. Yeah, and of course there are 11 castles that um, the National Trust is curator for. Among the among these, we've got a whole variety from great fairy tale castles like Craigievar in Aberdeenshire to the more simple, basic type of castle. But perhaps the one that's most famous in its association with the Trust is Killeen Castle, which was given as a gift by the Marquis of Ailsa. And it's a beautiful castle, but the cost of its upkeep and restoration has almost bankrupted the trust on more than one occasion. Yeah, I I just think that even its location right on top of the cliff there, you just think that that must have to have massive maintenance and checking it over. But I I just love that it's so imposing when you see it. And of course, it it is more than a one day out. It's so much to see there. It's, It's fantastic. And of course, it's a Robert Adam castle. Robert Adam design. Yeah, beautiful. And there are 16 stately homes. Of these, my favourite is very close to home because my favourite of the stately homes, it's not really the stately home itself, it's an appendage, if you like, to it. And that's the Dunmore Pineapple, which was built by the fourth Earl of Dunmore, whose official residence was Dunmore House. Now, Dunmore House is just a stone throw from where my mum lives, not far from Stirling. And uh, this was 1700s, middle of the 18th century, where the, the high and mighty of the time were impressing all their visitors by having very fancy gardens. And one of the things that they liked to do was to build a walled garden. And they would heat the bricks of the walls by putting a furnace which passed hot air through a gap between it. And that would enable them to grow plants and fruits and vegetables that wouldn't normally grow in our climate. And the fourth Earl of Dunmore, he actually, um, this, there's a story in this because when I was across visiting Williamsburg in Virginia, I went um, on a tour of it and heard of how the fourth Earl of Dunmore was the last governor of Virginia. And he actually handed it over. Well, it was him that adorned his house by putting this beautiful structure of a carved pineapple. And inside it, this summer house, he would he had a pineapple-shaped cupola or arch up above it. And in it, he would grow pineapples, which, of course, um, were one of the most exotic fruits. And he'd found them when he was in Virginia. I I, I, lo- I love the pineapple there. It is, it is just so 
out of out of place, isn't it? And of course, the pineapple was a sign of welcome, wasn't it? You still see that that symbol, uh, whether it be in some wrought iron gateways round other places. Nothing quite so grand and spectacular as the Dunmore pineapple. And of course, coming back to renting properties, you can actually rent the the pineapple and stay there. And the pineapple itself is just about room enough inside it to have a table and some chairs, but you do get the rest of the house as well. <laughs> yes, and and there are so many of these kind of stately homes around. You've got, well, the, the Hill of Tarvet, we did that in a previous podcast. And uh, New Hales House is one that is, a, is another one just outside Edinburgh. And I think we must remember, Liz, when we're talking about all these different places, these are really hidden gems at the moment. People don't have them on their itineraries, or not many people have them on their itineraries. They have the main blockbusters, but these little ones are just as as exciting. A New Hales house just outside Edinburgh, and it's it's layered with centuries of you know, interiors, fine art, furniture, and it just tells you what the generations of the Dalrymple family who used to have Hale's house, how the generations of, of that family sort of lived during the time they had the Hale's. It's got beautiful Italian fireplaces and Chinese sitting rooms, impressive fine art. It is just wonderful. And of course, they still continue to be sort of in a place of innovation and creativity. And that's the thing I like about the National Trust for Scotland. Many of these places come alive. They use, they have events that that help people get involved. You you take an active part in them, so you can go there. You can have art workshops, open air theatres, just fantastic. Yep, you're absolutely right, Helen. They bring it to life. They're living museums. But of course, it owns, the trust owns over 130 properties. Well, not actually owns it. In some cases, it's, it's, it manages them. But of these, only 27 are actually castles and stately homes. The majority of them are much smaller and uh, they shine a light on how our, our, our predecessors lived, rural and working class communities, and very often they're historic houses. I mean, again, one of the big blockbusters is the birthplace of our national bard, Robert Burns in Ayrshire, where you can actually feel you know, what his life was like and learn about him. Another less known one is the geologist Hugh Miller on Cromarty on the Black Isle. And his previous home has been converted into a museum and it contains the fossils because he was a geologist and uh, a writer. And it, it tells the story of his life through his birthplace. Yes, and you know, again, another little place. Everybody has heard of Peter Pan. Everybody's probably seen Peter Pan, the, the work by J.M. Barry. Well, J.M. Barry was you know, born in, in Scotland. And you know, his house is open as part of the National Trust for Scotland. And you can go and see there. You can see the little outhouse of his little tiny little cottage the, the little outhouse I think might have been the inspiration for the Wendy house and of course Wendy uh, was the name that became very popular after the writing of Peter Pan. And a lot of vernacular buildings you know vernacular buildings we've done an article an episode on this before these were functional buildings that were built using local materials so we've got Moylanach Longhouse which is what's called a crock framed buyer dwelling so your button bend your crocks held up the roof and the last inhabitants only left this in 1968 so you can see that how the 
the people, the, the residents, lived side by side with their animals. You can see the tools that they would have used. So, again, a living museum. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I, I love spotting as we're driving around the countryside are the ducats. These mm-hmm. were the, the, the dovecotes where they kept the pigeons. And there was an, an act of parliament that said every manor house, this was about the 1500s, every manor house had to have a ducat because that was where the fresh meat for the winter came from and also the first, first fertiliser for the land. But a couple of the, the more famous ones are the both Ducat, which is near, quite near Culloden, it's just outside Nairn at Aldern, where there's a battle, and this Ducat has got sites for five hundred and fifteen nest, nesting boxes. So that's that would keep you going over the winter time. <laughs> and then the other one that I love now, I hold that I phonetically it looks like Finavon, but I think it might be Finan uh-huh. Ducat, and that's the largest one in Scotland. And that has, believe it or not, 2,400 nesting boxes. And these two are both very well preserved. And uh, Finan one went into the care of the trust in the 1990s. So I think you see a lot of ruined ducats around. But I think the National Trust realises that there are some that really need to be looked after. And my favourite is fantasy ducat. Again, how do you pronounce that one? I think it's fantasy, fantasy, Ducot, but it stands next to Preston Mill. And we've got any Outlander fans out there, Preston Mill was used as one of the filming locations because it's a kind of architectural oddity. It's a a working mill, a water mill, but it's got a a Dutch-style conical roof. Um, So it's really quaint and atmospheric, and it has the fantasy Ducot just beside it. And again, it could house over 500 pigeons. So these are industrial buildings um, scattered across Scotland that tell the story of how the people worked. And then, of course, inside all of these, we have the collections, because the um, the National Trust, they act as guardians for over 300,000 precious artefacts. And again, this is about painting a vivid picture of how life would have, have been lived inside these properties. Yes, and I think, I think for me, my sort of visual look is not very great. I can't really visualise things too easily. But going into places which are actually set out with the furniture of the period, the furniture that's been in the house for hundreds of years, is just fantastic. And of course, I think what the National Trust for Scotland does too, it's got really, really good at the storyboards that they put around their properties to help you understand what they are. Yeah, we've got so many of these. I mean, Brodie Castle, we've got the, the Brodie children's toys there. There's also the one of the other things I love is the, the um, wine decanter with, in the shape of a dodo oh, that, at Brodie Castle. And then Kelly Castle, the home of Sir Robert Lorimer. So we get an idea of you know famous people of Scotland that have influenced Scotland, how they lived. Also, we've got Broughton House, which was Hornell, the Scottish Glasgow boy, one of the colourists. So, you know, like you were talking about, about, about Peter Pan, you know, the, you, you can see them in this setting and what the influences were on their lives. And of course, Robert Lorimer that you mentioned with Kelly Castle, people will probably know of him more from his architectural designs. The National War Memorial at Edinburgh Castle is one of his designs and also the Thistle Chapel in St Giles. So if you go to Kelly Castle, you can see where his inspirations were coming from and also some of the sketches that he was doing when he was living there. 
And of course, you know, my favourite passion is not just the collections inside, we have the gardens as well. Sometimes the gardens are standalone in their own right. I mean, one of the most famous in Verjus, Brodick, but very often they're just the gardens of the houses. So one of my personal favourite is Mulaney, which is the National Rose Collection. And it's at Balerno, just outside Edinburgh. And it's got one of the largest collection of 19th century shrub roses. So, you know, these are preserving these old and new varieties for the nation. And so the National Trust has an important role to play um, in plant collections. You know, Liz, until, until you told me about this, I didn't even know about the Millennia Rose Garden. And that is one I'm going to have to visit. Yeah, I took a couple there who were, that was their passion was roses. So um, that was my introduction to it many years ago. And I love it. Beautiful garden, big yew trees as well. So, you know, lots, lots of that. But we have to remember, and this is really important, that the National Trust is not just about maintaining buildings and collections. An ever-increasing role that the National Trust is playing is custodian to Scotland's natural environment, because, of course, it's the third largest land manager in Scotland. Yes, and, and you know, thank goodness for the National Trust, because I watched a, a TV programme a couple of months ago about who owns Scotland. It was in two parts. One was urban Scotland and the other one was rural Scotland. And it is absolutely scary to see you know, who owns rural Scotland. So thank goodness for the National Trust for Scotland for you know, getting some of that land into safety. Yeah, I mean, we're coming under increasing pressure. Our wild land, that's our land where natural processes predominate. There's not a lot of building. It's not built up. They're coming under pressure for things like renewable wind farms. As you say, they're being bought up by outsiders who come in and we can't, we don't know what their intentions are with one of our finest assets. So the National Trust has a really important role to play in advocacy and the development of strategy for how these areas are going to be used in, in the future. And of course, one of the biggest challenges that we're all facing at the moment is climate change. So how can these areas adapt given these changes in climate? Yes, and we started off our wee, our wee blether today, Liz, talking about the, the change from last week to this week or two weeks ago to last week you know, with climate. And it, it, is, it is really there that we've got to do something. But we've also got to do something that allows our land to be used and the natural assets of the wind, the wave, etc., the water to help us, but not to at the detriment of the landscape. Yeah, we've left the, the EU now, so there's no formal control over um, land protection. And so it, the, the trust's role becomes ever more important, environmental protection and helping the government to, to plan ahead and to protect these, these beautiful national scenic areas and national nature reserves and whatever that the, the trust has in its protection. Yeah, and and I think we we are lagging behind other you know members of the United Kingdom, other nations in in the amount of protection that is there at the moment. I think that in terms of you know, people from outside of Scotland buying up the the land, there is no cap that they can buy as much as like in England there is a cap. You can only buy so much. So I think that we've got a lot to do to get get a hold of it, and get a grip of it. 
Yeah, and I think one of the most recent pieces of evidence of the the National Trust's success, the National Trust for Scotland's success, and um, one that I think most people in Scotland are familiar with, was the the um, protecting the site at Culloden. Oh, yes. This this battlefield that is at the centre of Scottish history, and all round about it, the land that is not owned by the trust because it's such a, a draw to tourists. People were wanting to develop it as an area, it's beautiful scenery around about. So there were proposals for homes to be built there. There was a proposal to turn an existing equestrian centre into a leisure resort with 13 lodges on stilts, a cafe, a shop, laundry, restaurant. So it's just this idea of Kinematata and um, what do you call it, Lion King, you know, that that this beautiful area should be turned into a a tourist trap, for want of a better word. And so at first this was approved, the building of the houses and the the treetops equestrian centre was approved, but the the National Trust, in in consultation with others, went forward and eventually, after the second appeal, it's been upheld and there's, there's still strong national concern for the future of the battlefield and it's not going to be turned into this tourist trap that, that some might have wanted. No, and I, I we've also got to remember, Liz, that the battlefield that is there at the moment is only a small section of what was the actual battlefield. So we want to protect that bit now we've now it's there. We don't want to be surrounded with houses. You you lose the atmosphere of the place. Yep, and one of the ways that they were successful in their, their claim for the their um, for the proposal to be overturned was they brought up archaeological evidence that the battlefield actually extended into the areas round about and there was still a lot to be found. So the research and conservation work of the National Trust is absolutely vital. They've got over 11,000 archaeological sites across their land and that ranges right through from the Mesolithic period, 8,500 years BC, right through to the modern day. And they, they help to tell the story of the history of Scotland. Yes, and, and and I think that's what I I really like about the the National Trust for Scotland. It it isn't just you know, one kind of or one type of property or landscape. It's right across the history of Scotland. The I think that we also the sea coasts and these the marine conservation that they're involved with as well is very important. St Abbs Head. And you know, Staffa and Canna and all these places that are to do with the, the water and the marine life around Scotland. And you mentioned it before, Helen, but one of the things that they do is to protect cultural activities as well. So, you know, the themes that they have in their properties and whatever, they, they conduct research into what is it that Scotland's what is it that Scots think is most important about their culture in Scotland. And then they can preserve it and develop it and whatever. And one of the things when I was researching this that I really was impressed by, which I hadn't been aware of before, much to my shame, is the the National Trust for Scotland website. Because when you go into that, it has so many stories and podcasts. One of the ones that I was reading was about why do we collect shells? And it was fascinating because I love collecting shells. And it was just a beautiful story. So I really do you know, encourage our listeners to go and have a look at the National Trust website, and in particular the stories and podcasts. Yes, and and you know, just to see the variety. And I, was, I mentioned St Ab's Head there, Liz, about the, that's a kind of always looked after by volunteers. And that's another thing the National Trust for Scotland has, a huge army of volunteers. But at St Ab's Head, one of the things they do is the annual 
grey seal count and they count the pups. And in 2020, they recorded 1,800 seal pups. Now, that was the largest ever number collected. And I wonder if that was something to do with, with COVID, in fact, the fact that they were not being interfered with or made a nuisance, you know, people weren't being a nuisance around them. So that was that was something. But they're generally just always protecting the landscape to make sure that the gorse bushes, for example, don't you know, intrude into the wildflower areas around the coast. So these volunteers are working very hard to keep our marine coastline intact as well. Yeah, and of course, everything comes full circle back to the pandemic. And in terms of the National Trust, the pandemic has been both a a curse and a blessing. I mean, as we came into it in 2020, they really did think that it was going to have an absolutely catastrophic effect because, of course, there were no visitors and the costs of keeping up all these properties and landscapes were still going on. So really were seriously concerned. But thanks to um, generous grants from the government, um, and they also unfortunately had to pay off many members of their staff, but they managed to get through it. And one of the the big boons coming out of it was that their portfolio of investments actually did much better than they thought. So they came out of it relatively well, and they now have a really ambitious strategy to take forward the National Trust for Scotland into the next decade. Yes, and and I think that's good. And they're also looking very much at what what we all have to look at, carbon footprints, try to make sure that they're carbon negative by, I think it's 20. 2031 they're looking yeah, to be carbon birthday. yeah yes so it's it's that's a good aim to have and and that will really help people and i think in scotland we're probably slightly better placed for that because of, again of our wind wave power and water power that we have yeah it's making this balance isn't it between the commercial activity which is essential to give us the energy that we're crying out for at the current time but at the same time protecting our wild places these places of extreme beauty and that's where the trust really has an important part to play you mentioned Kana and Staffa and those are the two big priorities for the next decade moving forward that um, they're going to invest in their, their infrastructure and develop them so that more tourists can visit Yes, I, I think at the moment, for those of you who have been to Staffa, it's it's quite a, a hairy experience if the water is anything but flat calm to get on to Staffa. But it's so, when you're on there, it is just so wonderful. So if they can you know, make it a little bit more easier, will be will be terrific. But one of the things, talking about storms, and another place that people, many of the people listening will have been to is to Iona. And over the past few years, Liz, you'll have, you'll have noticed as well, this, this little building that started sort of appearing near, near the ferry, near where the ferry comes in. And this is the ferry shelter. And this was something, it had been the old site of the old fire station. Well, I think that's rather a grand word for what Iona had. <laughs> but the site of the old fire station, and it had been an old shed. I always remember thinking, I wonder whose garage that is. But they, when they were building the, the new shelter for people waiting for the ferry, they were very, very careful to use, use the same footprint, the same type of materials. That would, so everything fitted in. And again, that's a big thing for the National Trust for Scotland to make sure that what they build can be very, very modern, but it must be sympathetic with the, you know, the landscape all around. 
Yep, so the aims of the National Trust for Scotland are exactly the same today as they were when Sir John Stirling Maxwell and his buddies got together and set out the constitution. It's there to champion the natural, built and cultural heritage for everyone and make sure that they can encourage people to connect with the things that make Scotland unique. So uh, they restore and protect the habitats, the historic buildings, the landscape, and again, coming back to the stories. Mm -hmm. They share the nation's stories and get people involved in taking a pride in Scotland. So their target, increase their visitors, increase their sponsors, their donors, and coming out of COVID again, there's a recognition that you know the the impact that open spaces can have on our mental health. You know, people are getting out and about. Yes, I think I think that's so so right. And one of the things increasing the visitors is great, but also make visitors aware of all the all of their sites, so that the it's not just the blockbusters that people you know, go to that they go to some of these hidden gems that we've mentioned you know in this podcast and in previous podcasts Liz yeah I mean I'm never every time I do this there's always so many oh, places yes. that go on my bucket list to do that haven't been there's a lot of these hidden oh, I gems know, I'm exactly the same and so Liz have you a, a will I start off with a word of the week yep you go will with your word because my word follows on from right. yours Helen okay <laughs> Liz mentioned early on that the National Trust or Sir John Sir John Sterling Maxwell saw him saw the National Trust as a cabinet in which all the various treasures would be put. And um, the Scottish word for a cabinet or a big chest is a kist, K-I-S-T. So I think since it's the National Trust for Scotland, we'll we'll talk of it being a large kist. <laughs> And, you know, just going through it and just scratching at the surface of how many properties there are out there for people to explore. And there's so many um, treasures inside that kist. And in Scots, we would say there was a wheel of treasures, you know, lots and lots of treasures in there for you to explore. So for all of us, there's still so much to do and see in Scotland. Oh, there is. There is. I'm off to, I think, the rural Museum of Rural Scottish Rural Life. I think I saw that and I thought that sounds good. So well Liz, well thank you very much. I won't hold you back. <laughs> but Liz, that that's been great. Thank you very much for 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 today. And um next week we're going to look at the properties of historic Scotland or historic environment Scotland. Absolutely. See, See you next, next week, Helen. Bye for now. Bye for now. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye.